this is Alan Chartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with our old friend, Mark Volpe. Mark Volpe served as president and CEO of the Boston Symphony Orchestra from September 1997 until June 2021. In his role, he was responsible for all the activities of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Boston Pops, and Tanglewood, as well as the real estate holdings of the BSO, the most extensive of any orchestra in the world. Since then, Mark has spent time teaching and lecturing at a variety of universities, colleges, and music schools across the U.S. and Italy, as well as advising several cultural institutions and arts leaders on a myriad of issues. Mark is also scheduled to judge a couple of international competitions in Europe. He is co-authoring a book to be published by Major University Press in Italy and co-authoring several case studies to be published in the fall. We'll catch up with Mark Volpe on all of this, but first... Welcome, my old friend, Mark Volpe. Alan, it's great to be chatting with you. Mark, what are you doing now? Well, I, I uh, was just in uh, Miami for, uh, uh, actually, I was in Florida for about three weeks, and I, I did a very intensive residency at the University of Miami in, in a fantastic setting. I mean, it, it gives you hope when you, when you uh, as you recall from your, your teaching days, when you're around young, idealistic folks who have not quite... Uh, reached the point of cynicism in their, their respective life uh, cycles. So I, I, I had a great experience there. The, uh, the president of the university, who I spent some time with, Julio Frank, used to run, the, was the dean of the Harvard School of Public Health. And they have a very interesting business school that, that's fairly holistic and uh, focused on, on uh, not just the not-for-profit world, but the commercial world as well. And then uh, my old friend, Jerry Schwartz, who uh, was the music director of Seattle and, of course, most, mostly Mozart, uh, Tangwood's competition, candidly, uh, he, he, he hosted me, and we, we had wonderful. So I, I think I taught 27, 28 classes and gave a bunch of lectures and had uh, individual sessions with uh, graduate students, a lot, a lot of doctors, candidates as to what, what – the world's going to look like in three years, five years, ten years, which which is much harder to predict now than certainly I I, I say in 1980. I kind of had an idea what 1990 was going to look like in the in the realm of culture and major institutions. Likewise, 2000, you kind of knew what 2010 was going to look like. As of, as of this date, it's it's hard quite to fathom to imagine what 25 is going to look like, let alone 30 or 35 as we progress. So I've, I've been doing that. I've been to SMU. I've been to the University of Rochester. Uh, I met with all the urban leaders there and some of the foundations and the city types. Uh, Cleveland Institute of Music, where my father matriculated, and so that was kind of fun. And then my, my, my favorite one so far in terms of geography uh, is, is um, I've formed a relationship with Bocconi University, which they they like to describe themselves as the Harvard of Italy. I, I don't think Harvard goes around saying they're the Bocconi of the United States, but but nonetheless, uh, they have a fantastic business school there. And, and fortunately for me, the major business schools in Europe primarily teach in English because, I mean, Bocconi has kids from Scandinavia and, and of course, France and uh, Switzerland, Germany, all those other uh, European countries. So So English is the common denominator. So I'm, I'm in the process of, uh, with a few professors writing a book uh, that, that supposedly is going to be done in the fall. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Uh, and and uh, already, uh, you know, we just was reviewing cover art earlier this morning with, with my two colleagues, uh, one of whom is actually in Naples, who was one of the people that also runs the Naples Opera. If you, if you remember Godfather 3, that incredible scene in the opera house, that that's the opera house in Naples, 
Italy, which actually, I think, precedes La Scala in Milan by 50, 60 years. I think it's the oldest uh, opera house. And the Allies bombed it, uh, and obviously chasing Hitler up the boot. But, but I, think, uh, I think they've re- – well, I know they've rebuilt it, but, but I think they were able to keep the show. So it's been an interesting, interesting five, six months, and I have a few other things. I, I, you referenced the competitions. My, 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 uh, my favorite one is, is uh, uh, Hoken Hagenberger, a friend, you know, friend of uh, Boston Symphony, friend of Tanguid, of course, uh, asked me to be one of the judges for the first international trumpet competition, which I think is going to be in Denmark and Sweden uh, next year. And, and I said I would do it on one, one condition, that they had a category for trumpet players over 90. So, uh, are you a trumpet which, player? I thought you were a clarinet player. Oh, first of all, I'm not over ninety. That's that's start with that point. <laughs> but but uh, that would be my father. I'm a clarinet player. My father's a trumpet player, and my father still plays trumpet every day and uh, plays plays gigs. Uh, he he sounds like a 92 year old trumpet player. Actually, he's 93, so obviously he's doing better. And I I, I think I was I was teasing. Uh, my dad, I, I think he and Doc Severinsen are the entire category, and 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 Doc Doc might be giving up the trumpet, uh, uh, at least in terms of public playing. So I think I think my dad might have that category to himself. So that that that'll be kind of fun. I'm being facetious, of course. As you may know, Mark, I'm a trumpet player of sorts myself, and never having been invited to participate as a soloist with the Tanglewood Orchestra, and I'm wondering why that was. We knew each other a long time. How come you never called on me to do what I do so well? I blame it on the mail, but I think uh, that would be a little, little bit uh, uh, false. But but uh, we, we had a, a slot for a non-regular you know regular trumpet player uh, that and I, I think it was a film night with the, the Lincoln score that John Williams wrote for that Spielberg movie. Uh, but it was it was you or Andres Nelson's, and we kept oh, on going yeah. back. I was very disappointed. And so it was John. So obviously you only have John Williams to blame. Good luck. He's one of the great human beings around. So he chose Andres. I was fighting for you, Andres. I mean, Andres. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this. Is there life after Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, you know, I ran orchestras. I had senior positions for 38 years. You know, I was a CEO at the age of 29, you know, in, in a different orchestra. I was, I was Detroit, um, you know, for, for, I don't know, seven years before going to Boston, uh, seven, eight years. You know, so I, I, I did it. And I, I always enjoyed uh, the, the one-offs of going to universities, especially I was, you know, doing things at, at Harvard and BU and MIT and, and especially the Kennedy. Uh, I'll tell you, one of the more humbling educational endeavors was I, I, I uh, was invited several times to go to the Kennedy uh, school at, at Harvard's, you know, and, and, you know, public affairs and politics and all that. And, and they had me with one of the federal mediators uh, um, do a mock negotiation and, and the union president uh, from the musicians union participated as well. And for me, it was, it was humbling in one respect because Virtually the entire class were, were you know, upper mid-level government folks from from South America, from Sub-Saharan Africa, from the Middle East. You know, there I don't I don't recall there even being uh, an American in the class. You know, what what am I negotiating? I'm negotiating rights and and money and and you know all sorts of other mundane things. And what what are they negotiating? They're they're negotiating food security. They're negotiating life and death issues. So I I I, I was always quite moved by 
experience and, and would, would frankly, after the class, take them all out uh, uh, to, to, to dinner just, just to hear their life stories, which, which were so compelling and, and so moving. So, you know, not that every, you know, academic uh, experience is, is, is like that, but I, I have a, a wonderful time. I'm enjoying it. Uh, I, I'd probably be doing some teaching in, in Italy uh, sometime uh, next year, which will be fascinating in a different, different setting. Uh, so, so, uh, and, and then the, the other thing that's happening, uh, is, is governments try to, uh, emerge from this pandemic and, and, and obviously deal with all, all sorts of consequences and ramifications uh, such as, you know, and, and some being very much financial, but the Italian government subsidizes culture to the tune of $3.8 billion and, and only the French government at $4 billion is higher, but, but there's a lot of pressure on that. Uh, and, and ultimately, uh, the big institutions in Italy are anticipating, uh, you know, some scaling back of, of government subsidy, and so they're looking more at the American model. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the uh, quite a few chapters in this book uh, are, are, are focused on fundraising and sponsorship and corporate support and, and individual philanthropy. Obviously, their tax code is is different than ours, but but there there are now some incentives. I mean, our our you know, country uh, made a decision not to directly fund culture, but but to create uh, once the income tax got established, you know, with the wars, uh, the major wars, one and two, uh, once that got established, obviously, the deductibility uh, of, of gifts to activities that were deemed to be of, of, you know, special significance, whether it be social services or education or medical research or, or of course, culture. And, and so indirectly, uh, culture is subsidized by the government w- with the ability for us to, uh, you know, I- issue, I mean, the industry that is I- issue, you know, uh, receipts that, that can obviously be used as people uh, that itemize through their taxes and, and, and take it as deductions from their, their gross income. Uh, there, there, is, there is a school. Uh, it's very interesting. I've been doing quite a bit of reading. Alan, and, and there, there are a few professors, uh, one in particular at Stanford, that feels that these, these mega foundations, that these uh, mega billionaires have been able to, to frankly, uh, you know, make the whole uh, situation undemocratic. In other words, they're substituting their values, their politics for, for the greater good of the, of, of the uh, public. You know, if the money went into, to, you know, the, the public coffers, uh, obviously, you know, then it would be Congress that would allocate it. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that's any better, given what's going on in Washington, you know. So I'm not, I'm not by any means, and you know, and, and we, we were, you know, the cultural institutions were beneficiaries of, of, of the, the generosity of, of, of you know, the, some of the hyper wealthy people. But that, that's getting to be a big uh, topic uh, uh, in academia. We'll see if it goes beyond academia. Well, Mark Volpe, how many generations is your family away from immigration? My father was almost born on the boat, uh, but, but he, he uh, uh, <laughs> the only, uh, I don't, it's not sad per se, but, but the only disappointment uh, in this research on my family uh, in terms of when my, when my grandfather renounced his Italian citizenship, uh, and, and if he hadn't done that, I, I could actually be, uh, uh, given where my father is and all that, I, I could actually uh, have Italian citizenship, which means you get an EU passport, which in, in today's world might be you know, somewhat easier to 
used in a U.S. passport, depending on where you're going, um, you know, and, and less less uh, well, less loaded. Um, you know, so so uh, you know, it, it, it's um, it, you know, my my mother's Greek. In fact, uh, I, I I was baptized twice, confirmed twice. Uh, my, my parents had to get married twice because the Orthodox and the Catholics didn't recognize each other each other's uh, uh, obvious uh, sacraments. Uh, and, and of course, my mother was the first one not to marry Greek, and then and then then my dad's sisters all you know mar- married uh, men of the Jewish faith. So so and, and as is my sister. So uh, so we we are a hodgepodge, but we're we're you know a, uh, two generations and one generation removed from from uh, the old country, so to speak. So you are one of the great alumni of a very small fraternity of people who ran orchestras and did it for years and did it so well. In fact, I'm still angry at you for leaving. So my question is, why'd you do it? I, I just wanted to do something else. If I had stayed, you know, I, I had actually organized, you know, uh, my, my finances and my, my thinking around retiring at the uh, from the orchestra field, obviously I'm not retired in terms of activity. Uh, at 60, and and that was when you know ultimately there were a whole series of of, of massive uh, you know massive social movements. You know whether it be the Me Too or or the you know the, of course the social justice reckoning. You know and, and you know that that you know, precedes Floyd. I mean Floyd situation put it into a whole different place, uh, and that that's out of my own hometown. But I, I just knew if I stayed any longer, then I'm a lifer and I'm, I'm doing it till I'm 70. And I wanted, I, I, I wanted to have time to write. Uh, I, I've been approached. We've, I've had several conversations with, with uh, uh, various agents and, 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 frankly, publishers about, you know, something more, more personal. Some, I don't want to call it memoirs because I haven't even uh, outlined it. Uh, I, I knew in the academic world that there was interest in having me and I'm kind of sampling a bunch of different places, and 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 certainly uh, academically, uh, I, I've been asked to write. I mean, I'm obviously trying to be careful and, and somewhat uh, selective, uh, but but you know, I'm I'm writing at, at least two cases, and I'm you know, I'm co-authoring a book that all you know uh, will be out, and and certainly that will probably involve a book tour at least in Europe, and that will probably involve uh, uh, possibly. Uh, going to Europe and helping train the next generation of, of managers that are obviously going to have skill sets uh, that are more uh, uh, similar to what you have in the United States, where, where fundraising and marketing, because the government subsidies, if you, if you get 60, 70 percent of your budget from the government. For, for instance, Andres Nelson is the music director, not just of the Boston Symphony, but the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra. The chairman of the board of the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra happens to be the mayor of Leipzig because his contract is with the city of Leipzig. Every musician is an employee of the city of Leipzig. When Seiji went to conduct the Vienna State Opera, obviously in, embedded in the title of the institution as state, so he, he was actually uh, uh, paid by the Austrian government as, as music director. So you, you have these different models. And, and, and those models are under enormous pressure to, to be less dependent on government uh, funding. So, they, so there's a real need in Europe in particular and, and various parts of Europe. Uh, England has always been a hybrid in terms of, of public and private sector funding. You know, so there's a, there's a need you know, for, for those uh, folks who are going to be leading not just the orchestras, because uh, this book is, is broader. It's the visual arts, it's, it's dance, it's theater, it's opera. 
so I, I, I have, I'm partnering with, with people at La Scala. I'm part, part, you know, the major theater in Milan is the Piccolo Theater. I'm partnering with them. There's a, a woman who's a very senior person in Catalonia who, who is asked to partner in a, in a, in a, and help write a chapter. Obviously, uh, from Barcelona, which is sort of the capital of mm-hmm. Catalonia. So, so you know, I've always been curious. You know, you and I share that. I mean, I've always admired your interest in so many different disciplines, and and obviously, you're an expert in politics, and you you taught, and you have, you know, degrees to uh, to obviously uh, back that up. But but you, you've been interested in so many different areas, and and likewise, and I and so I I wanted a different set of experiences, uh, and and without the day to day pressure. Of, of running an orchestra and, and being obligated, you know, at my heyday of my tenure there, I think we had 1300 employees, you know, which, you know, well over 300 were full time, you know, so you, you have people's, uh, you know, pensions, people's healthcare, people's uh, mortgages, people's kids' education, you know, so in, in, a, in an obviously complicated uh, economic environment, which, you know, frankly, that's, that's been the case for decades. Now, so Mark Volpe, you mentioned before, me too. I was interested in that because obviously the landscape has changed over the years and there's been a real evolution in the arts. Let's stick with Me Too for a moment. In your time, can you begin to tell us how important the role of women or less important it has become in running a major cultural institution? Well, I think it parallels what's happened at the major colleges and universities. You you see women in in leadership positions. Uh, When I came into my role as a CEO, there was one woman, uh, Deborah Border, who is now running the New York Philharmonic. And, and she, she and I were sort of the, the I mean, they, until I retired, we were the only ones left of that generation. Um, and so Deborah's the last one standing. Uh, I, I came to the Boston Symphony. I can't remember if there's one or two women on the senior staff. Uh, right, right now, I, uh, the, when I left, the senior staff uh, was, was a majority Women, I, I, probably 60%. I, I never did the calculations. So that has shifted. Uh, obviously, if you look at orchestras, I think there were 16 or 15, maybe 14 women in the orchestra when I came. And now there, I think, you know, 30 plus. And, and ultimately that, that'll, that'll continue rising. You know, it's a destination orchestra. So the attrition is two or three positions a year. So, so the blind screens of which Boston was the first that you were going back to the fifties. Uh, you know, explain the, the, that, explain the blind screen for everybody. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, you know, and it, it's, it's now getting a little controversial because it is the purest of meritocracy. So, so the auditions for the big orchestras, in fact, frankly, most orchestras now in America are all behind screens until maybe the very end to the finals. And so there, you know, the stage is divided in half. The, the candidate is on one side of the screen. The committee uh, that's composed of, of musicians of the orchestra uh, primarily playing similar instruments, you know, woodwind players evaluating a woodwind player, that, that type of thinking. And, and, and so that person is not allowed to talk. You, uh, there's typically, you know, now women wear flats more than heels, but in the old days there were carpets going to, to the place where they would play so you couldn't discern whether, you know, there's a woman wearing heels. I mean, not to suggest that guys don't occasionally wear heels, too. I, I'm, not, I'm not taking a position on yeah. that. But, but every, every, every precaution was made so that the, the gender, the race, you know, would, would, would not uh, be a consideration. And, and so, therefore, you, you saw an incredible increase in the number of women and, and the big orchestras 
in 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 uh, America, and America led the way in that. Europe was a little slow to that, uh, and in fact, Vienna and Berlin had policies of no women until they realized that they were going to tour the world. That they had to become a little bit more enlightened, uh, and and so that that wasn't necessarily the case in Italy. There were there were women in, in various orchestras, so and, and opera companies, more opera companies and orchestras in Italy. Uh, but but uh, so that 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 that's how. Uh, you know, the system worked in Boston uh, was the first uh, starting in the mid 50s. The challenge is it, it hasn't really addressed the issue of, 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 of people of, of color because, uh, you know, you, you, you have such challenges. I mean, and and urban environments in terms of housing, in terms of segregation, in terms of education. So, sort of you know, there, there, there are affirmative programs. In fact, one one uh, was frankly funded as, as a going away gift to me. Uh, a program that 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 will will I think be introduced hopefully this summer, uh, where where young uh, people of color will uh, have a tanguid uh, music center experience and then then go into the orchestra and play every other week or thereabouts and and get you know coached and mentored uh, mock auditions you know be paying for other uh, auditions since there are so few vacancies in the Boston Symphony, so there are steps being taken that 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 program I started in Detroit. Uh, Along with Deborah Border 33 years ago, so we, we're we're a little late to that, but but ultimately we'll see. Uh, and then there's a Supreme Court case, as you probably know, uh, Asian students suing Harvard, uh, and 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 you know Harvard kind of staked out the position, their private entity, but obviously that gets thrown out because they get so much government money. But but who knows what the Supreme Court will be doing in respect to the various affirmative uh, action programs, and and obviously the, the cases that are coming in front of them. Are, are coming out of the upper education, higher education uh, group, uh, and, and the major precedents were established with Baki, and, and there's a Michigan case, uh, uh, Coleman. Uh, so, so it, it's not clear, you know, with a six-three court or a five-four court, depending on where Roberts is, where where, where affirmative action is going to stand uh, at the end of the, this upcoming term. It, 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 they might they might try to split the difference, but you, you never know. Mark Volpe, did you ever institute a dress code for your orchestra? I say that because, you know, I would sit in the audience and look up at it, what people were wearing, and I'm wondering whether, you know, you ever said this is what you should wear to men and women. I, I will tell you uh, there are uh, language in the collective bargaining agreement, which is the contract with the musicians and the corporation, uh, that that absolutely specifically specifies what what musicians are to wear for different concerts. Sunday afternoons are different than Saturday and Friday nights. One of the reasons I was able to uh, you know have senior positions for 38 years uh, in, in orchestras is I never told any of the women what to wear. I I, I <laughs> that's that's a career stopper almost. So so I I I, I defer to others and frankly. Let the personal office work with the, the, the women. It's more of a women's issue because if you look at the men, they're wearing tails. Tails are tails. A tux is a tux. A dark suit's a dark suit. A white dinner jacket's a white dinner jacket. You know, the, with the women, you know, off the sleeve, on the sleeve, length, all, all those issues that I, I, I chose as the true coward I am ne- never to raise with, with the, the women of, of the orchestras I was so fortunate to lead. 
Okay, so recently at the Oscars, there was a little bit of a tiff in which somebody said something about somebody else's wife and got smacked in the face for it by an insulted husband. So that leads me to ask you whether in the history, your history with the Boston Symphony, you ever saw anything like that, a fight break out between the first and second violinist or the flute player and the clarinet player. I have a relative who hit somebody over the head with a clarinet once and broke it over his head. And so I'm wondering, have you seen any of that? That's a hard head. Yeah. I'll say in my tenure in Boston, uh, there was a fight in the audience at Opie United Pops uh, that I think involved a, a, a date and some uh, aspersion cast. Uh, so so we, we always have security and the security was inside. So, so a few punches were thrown. Uh, Channel 7 or Channel 10, I can't remember, captured it. So it, it made the rounds. It made national news, I think, at some point. Uh, so, so it, yes, I, 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 in terms of the locker room and, and you, know, uh, you know, I always use the metaphor, we're a big family, big extended family, and we have pockets of dysfunction. So, you know, there were arguments, and, you know, we, we had a phenomenal uh, personnel manager, orchestra manager, Lynn Larson, and, and, and I have, you know, a little bit of uh, aptitude in that area. We were able to diffuse uh, most things. The, the most violent thing that happened, what didn't happen in Boston, uh, it happened uh, in in Minnesota, uh, where where uh, one of the musicians' uh, uh, spouse, uh, a, a wife, left uh, left a, a a person in the orchestra for uh, a woman in the uh, percussion section, and this guy proceeded to take his knife. And, 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 you know, how the drum drums all have heads and he, yeah. he split all the drum heads. So that, that was the last thing he ever did uh, as, a, as a member of the Minnesota orchestra. Uh, there was one other person that uh, was, uh, there was a fight uh, also in Minnesota, which is it's the orchestra that raised me. And, and when I was there that my first tour of duty growing up, it was a, it was a real family. I, you know, I, I knew all the, you know, you know, so, so somehow that culture changes because cultures can't, can change. Uh, and so there were a few few things. I think it's a little saner now. Uh, in Detroit, we got hit, and this this was just totally devastating. Uh, uh, the, the 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 plague, the 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 AIDS crisis hit the Detroit Symphony very hard, uh, and 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 we we had uh, uh, two two suicides in a very short period of time, and Baltimore Symphony had had one as well uh, when I was there. That 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 is is totally you know beyond demoralizing it's just it's just devastating when that happens uh and 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 then and, and it was precipitated by people that that were far along in the in the you know the aids you know the disease so so it, it yeah so i you know and, and when you work 38 years you you, you know you, you you see you you see a lot i i would say uh uh when i uh, was with the baltimore symphony we reopened uh you know, cultural exchange with the Soviet Union, and and one of the things, uh, and and if there's a better audience than the Russians, I don't know, and I won't get into the politics of what's transpiring now, which is just also devastating. But 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 I'll never forget uh, when after our, our first concert, the entire audience came to the stage door in this alley, you know, behind the hall in Moscow, and and the next night, because uh, Gergiev, uh, not wasn't Gergiev, um, uh, can't remember a few of the conductors, Gergiev wasn't around. But 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 I I, I was uh, I, I I was sitting with Gorbachev and I could tell he was angry, uh, and so the next night 
uh, the second concert, they brought in these armed people movers and, and just kind of, of, you know, going, didn't run anybody over, you know, going fast. They were going like two, three miles an hour, just pushing people out of the way because they didn't want uh, their, their crowd congregating uh, and, and didn't want, you know, so, so that, that, that was a real, in my mind, act of violence, but uh, you know, it was the, the, the Russian political leadership, uh, you know, obviously imposing violence on, on their own people. So that, that was kind of striking to, to, to watch. I mean, that, that whole trip w- was quite amazing because you, you realized, you know, ideology aside, you know, lines everywhere. We, we had to have the orchestra eat uh, uh, as, as a group because there was no way you could get into a restaurant and, and get seated for three hours or, and, and then you'd get seated and there was no food. The other more amazing thing, I don't know if you were ever in the Soviet Union, uh, no. uh, but, um, uh, you know, you, you don't get a key to your room. There's a Rocio Hotel. It's been torn down. It's right on Red Square. You you get a card. You give the card to the babushka because there was a whole generation of women who lost their husbands in the Second World War. You know, this is in the 80s I'm talking about. I was there several times in the 80s. And then she gives you a key. And then and then when you leave, the you know, same babushka sitting there. Uh, and and uh, and and then you give her the, the 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 key, and she gives you your card back. You know, and and basically, you know, it was a full employment deal. But it was also they were monitoring where everybody slept every night, and there were like eight Soviet immigrants in the orchestra. A few of them would slip out and try to you know sleep with you know their their parents, or they sleep in the house of their parents or their brothers or sisters. Uh, and of course, in Soviet Union, it was illegal not to sleep in your assigned hotel room. So it wasn't about morality or anything because we had other people that were messing around. Uh, it, it was about, you know, frankly, they had no money. So we were supposed to be paid in hard currency. You know, it was before the euro. So it was, they didn't want to pay us in dollars. So it was francs, Deutschmarks, pounds. And so they basically said, you didn't need all these rooms and we're not going to pay you. You know, and it was a real, real interesting exchange. But it was amazing. My, my godfather played in the New York Philharmonic and was on the last tour, like 13 years later, he took pictures of the babushkas and they were in exactly the same corridor, uh, working the same set of rooms 13 years later. It was an amazing experience. But, you know, I'll tell you the other thing that was, we had a Yuri Scher, a cellist in the orchestra, had just had a baby and he bought all these Russian baby books. And I'll never forget when we were leaving at that point, Leningrad, now now St. Petersburg, of course, uh, the, the customs guy took the baby books and, and, and tore them page by page, you know, and the orchestra's going crazy asking me to intervene. And Yuri just, to his great credit, just says, let it happen. You know, obviously, you know, a, a, you know, a Jewish member of the orchestra, and they, they were just going to hassle him. And what was fascinating is we had Mikulski with us. We had Sarbanes with us. We had Schaefer with us, you know, two senators and the governor. And, and they could care less. They got treated as badly as we got treated. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, you know, well, and, and then, of course, you know, Gorbachev leaves, Yeltsin comes in, you know, the, the Soviet Union disintegrates. But it was it was fascinating. Now they're right right back to, you know, they're, they're autocratic. <laughs> Might as well bring the, the Romanovs back. I mean, they're all dead now. But anyhow, it's pretty scary. Do the Russians have a culture, a musical culture, that puts them at an advantage over other places in the West? Yeah, because if you ask, you know, people to rank, you know, institutions or whatever, uh, in Russia, it would probably be Bolshoi and Kirov 1 and 2, you know, maybe after the military. So so the, the society as a whole, you know, places uh, the culture institutions like, like we, we like we treat, treat the, the Boston Red Sox or, 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 the, or the New England Patriots or the New York Giants, depending on whoever's listening to this. You know, uh, I, I, you know, it, it's a different 
it's a different set of priorities. Uh, so, so they have, if, even with finite resources, they, they fund culture. Um, but, but, you know, that being said, I mean, the, you know, the, the joke is, you know, I was, you know, when the, back in the old days, Leningrad Philharmonic, uh, goes on, on, on tour and plays American plays Carnegie and all that, and, and goes back to Leningrad as the, the Leningrad string quartet. Cause any, any, anybody could get out, you know, wanted to get out and for a while. It was only people of the Jewish faith, uh, you know, and then you had the whole review, refuse Nick, uh, situation, uh, I don't want to get too much into geopolitics, but but uh, the, the other thing they have, Alan, yep. is is you know an education system which I would consider at times brutal, but they have phenomenal teachers and it's phenomenal discipline, you know, uh, and 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 so so they 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 continue that tradition of teaching. I mean, a, a few of the big teachers have left and gone to Germany and a few other places to teach. A few of them have come to. Uh, to uh, America to teach because uh, it, it really is a system and it, it obviously works. You could argue, you know, it's not entirely humane, uh, but, but uh, you, you see it also in China, you know, they, they isolate the kids with talent early on, you know, whether it's sports or music, you know, and, and, and then, you know, it, it's interesting. I was once with Isaac Stern uh, and, and hearing a bunch of, of, of Chinese eight, nine, 10 year olds, and 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 we were sitting there listening to all these kids play, and 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 he then he would call the mother over because he's typically mother, and he'd say you, you have to have this kid play you know soccer or, or, or read a book or play with friends. He he needs a he, he or she needs you know to have some you know sense of, of you know some sense of normalcy and 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 and, and all that. And I and you know we're we're flying back you know and I'm sitting with Isaac. I say Isaac, I really admire your courage you know to to you know raise the issue with these 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 parents he says no mark that 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 was for me those parents didn't hear a word i said i just did it because i i felt i needed to say just for my own sanity you know and and isaac's there to, to teach and mentor but but you know it's it, it's a system and and in terms of producing you know elite talent i mean one of the trickier things i've ever i, I did a bbc interview uh, a while back and they asked me, you know, and you know how loaded this is, Alan, you know, whether there's something genetically superior about Asian string players or something different about the wiring of the Asian brain. And the, and the easy out, and it's, and it's not just an out because it's absolutely true. There are like 50 or 60 million kids playing string instruments. You know, if you look at Be- Beijing and Shanghai and, and Guangzhou and, and Hong Kong and all the other major cities that we can barely remember their names, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's one of the disciplines in terms of their basic education program, you know, you teach language, you teach, you know, math, science, you, you teach a little history, uh, as you know, according to the, you know, the people's Republic, uh, a version of history and, and you, you play an instrument. It, it's one of the disciplines It's picking up on the Greeks and the Romans of the, and, and certainly the monks of the middle ages and the Chinese are there. Yeah. And, and so, you know, my, my answer to the BBC was if he has 60 million people doing something, it's a bell curve. Chances <laughs> are, be, be some sensational players and and that number in america is probably several hundred thousand so that, that there's a reason why you know you look at stages of every orchestra in america and you see a, a pretty significant uh, uh concentration of, of people of asian descent in, in orchestras and, and part of it's just a numbers game you know my my dad was in korea you know in the korean war where, where you know where, i don't I think they had a billion people then 900 million people where, where the chinese came 
you know, to the to the rescue of the North North Koreans. And, you know, and that was, you know, he's, he, you know, he'll tell you, you never see numbers like that. And so so it's at a certain point, there is a bell curve. You know, some are lousy. You know, most are kind of middling and, and some are, are, are geniuses. Mark Volpe, when you were running the Boston Symphony, did anything particularly annoy you? I was so busy, you know, if I were annoyed, it would have to be short-lived because obviously you have to move on. There's so many issues that you have to address. What annoyed me? I'll tell you one that annoyed me. Uh, we were at uh, Seiji's last tour. We were in Japan about to fly to uh, China uh, to, to play concerts in, in China. And, and right at that moment in time, if you recall the whole uh, – debacle in the Balkans, the NATO forces bombed the, the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. And I tell you what was really annoying is sitting there for, you know, we're, you know, in, in Tokyo and go on the tarmac at the Narita, the airport in Tokyo, and, and trying to get someone in the, in the U.S. government. To, yeah, I, I, you know, it was Sasser was the ambassador at that point. I think he was under a desk. You know, uh, and, and the, the, yeah. you know, obviously we decided not to go. And, and I finally got Foley, who was the former Speaker of the House, who was the ambassador of Japan, and, and got him to, to sort out, you know, what what you know our you know what we should do. Uh, uh, but but you know that 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 was one one you know one period where it was really annoying for two days, not getting any any insight into what was going on in, in Beijing, with their whole orchestra sitting waiting. You know, and we were meeting with the players, and trying to keep them. You know, calm. You had, you had spouses back in then Boston, and you know, wondering what the hell is going on because they, they had the NATO bombing of the Chinese embassy was pretty big news for a while, as you recall. Well, Mark Volpe, let me ask you this: the rise of unions in the United States has become very important, particularly, I think, in orchestras and other places. So, in the old days, you had temperamental conductors and others who would, you know, rant and rail. Then on comes these unions. How has that affected the way in which the music that we hear is being created? Well, I, I'm I'm here talking to you because of unions. My my father. Uh, I think had joined the Cleveland uh, Musicians Union when he was 15. Uh, obviously, had a very successful career as an orchestral trumpet player. When he got the job in Minneapolis, my mom was was teaching learning disabled kids, or at that point they didn't call him that. But so my dad was making $2,600 a year playing the orchestra. My mom was making $3,800 a year as a teacher. When when he retired. My mom was probably making forty, forty-five. He was making over a hundred thousand. It shows you the power of the musicians' union. Now, my mother had a union too, but obviously not nearly as effective. Uh, you could argue how, how woefully underpaid teachers are across the country. That that being said, uh, you know both my parents were members of a union. We had a, a wonderful three brothers and sisters. You know, wonderful life growing up, and, and a you know very solidly middle class. Uh, a family, uh, and 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 so I I am always been uh, a proponent of, of of unions, and you you know you look at, at at what's happened in this country with with the gross imbalance of the the very rich, and 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 you know the 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 people, you know who who have been you know totally marginalized. Uh, it, it's a sad commentary into what has happened in to unions and and, and frankly industrial America, and and part of it's just just you know, globalization. But part of it is, is just, you know, you go over the MIT Media Lab, Alan, all you see is these robotics. I, I was at a um, service, memorial service for, I spoke at one for a Detroit board member and the president of General Motors was there and I was talking, uh, you know, and he asked me, you know, how many men or women hours do you think it t- took to assemble 
a Cadillac, you know, 25, 30 years ago. I said, I don't know, 300. He says, well, you're close. It's like 260. And he says, how many, how many person hours is it to take, you know, assemble the Cadillac Escalades, you know, that are coming off the line uh, and, and then the Proton plant. And I said, I don't know, 30, 40. He said, no, 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 no. Try eight. So what happened to all those people who were making $28, $30 a year that had medical insurance for life, that had pensions? You know, uh, I mean, that's a whole, I mean, you look at the UAW, you know, now the UAW is uh, uh, trying to organize uh, museum staff. They just did at the MFA. Uh, so they, 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 you know, the car industry, you know, I mean, people are still buying cars, but, but they're, they're, they're made by robots. They're assembled by robots. Their parts still come in from wherever, and globalization has obviously had an impact on that as well. But 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 you know the 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 notion of you know working class parents you know my my grandparents uh, my you know grandmother taking in sewing my my grandfather working in a factory produces three kids one's one of the great trumpet players my dad and and the other two are PhDs uh, t- teaching psychology at universities you know that that's the American story uh, that 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 American story for for the generation you know that that great generation that, that preceded the baby boomers and I think the baby boomers have also had a, had a pretty good run. You look at, at the, the creation of wealth in this country, it, it's, in, it's so concentrated. I think going forward, it's, it's really tricky, you know, because the, 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 you know, the tech industry and biotech, which are obviously the great growth industries in America, are not, you know, heavily unionized. It's starting to happen a little bit in Starbucks and the Walmarts of the world, um, and not to mention Amazon. But, but uh, you know, and I, 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 I think there's a real place for unions. I'm very proud. I mean, if you ask me what my strength was, I, I did 14 collective bargaining agreements uh, with, with four different orchestras, I think seven or eight with Boston, no strikes, no lockouts, no no even contract extensions, all amicable, all, all mutually supportive. Uh, so I, I have great respect for labor. I have great reverence uh, for the people who had the courage to go out there and, and, and initially unionize uh, the field. So I, I, I you know, I, that's where I am. Uh, politically and, and 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 professionally as well, and I'm in Europe now talking about it a little bit. I mean, they're, 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 they have guilds. It's, it's a slightly different. I mean, it's not slightly. It's it's quite different than the American system, uh, but but ultimately, uh, and and obviously, I'm focused still uh, in in the you know the cultural world. But but it, it it's interesting. Museums in this country are starting to get unionized. The staff, the curators. Uh, uh, so, so go, going forward, I, I, you know, and the musicians have always been unionized, uh, and always been unionized, unionized since Petrillo in the thirties in Chicago, you mm-hmm. know, and it wasn't until, oh gosh, the sixties where musicians actually got the power away from the union presence to ratify contracts, you know, and so, but, you know, Tap Hartley, which is the big labor bill that, that passed, you know, is pretty anti-union in terms of lim- limiting the ability to, you know, and so it's interesting if you, if you're uh, a history, the two new books. On, on what the Democratic Party has to do uh, to, to, you know, re, you know, you know, they were dominant, obviously, in the Jackson era. They were dominant in the FDR era, uh, and and no longer. And they've they've sort of given up on white working class males who tended to be the ones who were unionized. And and you know, there's uh, argument. Obviously, the demographics of the country have gotten much more diverse and much more uh, uh, interesting. That 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 being said, you know, uh, you know, the Democrats, you know, positioning as 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 the party of the elite is kind of the flip of what it was when you were studying this initially and then becoming a great scholar. Alan, think about the Democrats; they were the party of the people. You know, hard, hard to make that case. You know, and then uh, now now uh, in terms of what's happened, uh, and so going going forward, 
Uh, it's not clear where the unionization, I can't imagine the musicians union, you know, they were great partners during the pandemic uh, across the country. You know, I, I was uh, chairing the Electronic Media Association, which is all the orchestras and all the opera companies and the media rights with the National Union. And they were they were helpful in terms of allowing when we couldn't have audiences to disseminate content electronically. So that's that's sort of where, where I am. I mean, I know at times mm. unions can be difficult and can be obstinate and can sometimes act not always in their their constituents best interests and then you know and we all know the jimmy hoffa story i'll tell you jimmy hoffa story uh, you have three minutes two minutes i've got about 12 minutes left in this interview and i want to okay. make sure that i'm able to ask some of the questions i want to ask you for sure tell us the story well quick story when i was in detroit the orchestra was insolvent 19 million dollars in debt and 18 million dollars earned income all that kind of stuff and we had a union box office where the guys were teamsters and making four or five hundred thousand bucks a year i mean mm-hmm. they were making 80 I mean, it was just nuts. And so I, I went and I asked to meet with the president of the Teamsters. Who was the president? It was Never. Jimmy Hoffa's kid. And we met in the same place that Jimmy Hoffa was abducted from. It's mm-hmm. still one of the Teamster hangouts. So I, I went to meet with him. He was cordial. We, we spent maybe eight minutes together. And the Teamster box office guys never showed up again. <laughs> he just I probably moved him to Fruhoff or they, he moved him somewhere. So, so that, that, that was my dealing with, with, with one of the Hoffas uh, in, in a Teamster issue, you know. I want to go to Tanglewood for a moment. You know, uh, we live in the Berkshires, the Shartoks do, and uh, we love Tanglewood. It is a huge part of, of, of our existence. Now, Tanglewood and the rest of the orchestra are where? In other words, what's the relationship between Tanglewood and the Berkshires and the Boston Symphony in Boston? Well, the the Boston Symphony, you know, obviously still has the largest scope of activities, and it owns Tanglewood. Now, if you look at some of the other summer festivals, uh, you know, the Ravinia is actually owned by a separate group uh, of, of people. That's the summer venue shed in, in, in Highland Park, uh, north of Chicago, because uh, people of the Jewish faith weren't allowed on the board of the Chicago Symphony. So they said, we'll show you, we'll create a festival and hire your orchestra. So that's that's sort of the history of the Ravinia Festival. Tangwood, you know, obviously was the inspiration of Kusevitsky, who who obviously wanted to keep the musicians employed year round, so they you know they wouldn't go to Europe and not come back. And also, he wanted you know in a, in a very visionary way train the next generation of musicians through the through the uh, obvious Tangwood Music Center at that point, Berkshire Music Center. And you talk about a, a leap of faith and talk about uh, you know a love of the future or commitment to the future because that was during 1940 when obviously. The world was already at war, and we were a year away from joining the war. Yeah. What do you mean in the end? And I have to say, if I may, uh, Mark, when uh, Mrs. Fitzpatrick died, the owners of the Red Lion Inn, Roselle, went to an estate sale and picked up a signed picture of Kusevitsky. Wow. <laughs> which is in our downstairs bathroom as a, <laughs> as, a, as a way of saluting Kusevitsky and everything that he did. But I'm sure that's inappropriate to raise. But go ahead. Well, his, his grave is in Lenox, so so obviously he's, he's, he's close to his grave, at least. You know, so so the Boston Symphony, you know, owns uh, Tangwood, and and you know there've been several, you know, you know, frankly, game changers. The Ozawa Hall was a game changer. I think the Lindy Center, in spite of the pandemic, is is a game changer uh, in terms of of, of keep continuing uh, a focus on on help, helping the students of the Tangwood Music Center, but even more critically. Uh, providing a year-round venue for for the, the citizens now that hopefully we can uh, restore 
uh, human contact. I don't want you to be mod- I don't want you to be modest, Mark. But you had a great deal to do with putting all of that together, which we are so proud of. And I just want to take a second to thank you. Go ahead. You're too kind. It wouldn't have happened without the generosity of, of, of the Lindy family. I can have ideas. Tony Fogg can have ideas. But if they're not funded, they're just ideas. And, and that, that became a reality because of, 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 of Joyce Lindy and, and their, their family. Um, that, that, that being said, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting, uh, and I'm, I'm writing a note on this, uh, the, one of the successes of the Boston Symphony is the multi-brand strategy, which we really reinforced, you know, because they, they had it, but they didn't really market it as such. But the Boston Pops, Tangwood, you know, the parts of Tangwood, Symphony Hall, the Boston Symphony, all have distinct constituencies with some overlap, all have distinct, you know, funding sources. You know, the Boston Symphony, every, every other orchestra has one annual fund. Cleveland Orchestra, one annual fund. Chicago Symphony, one annual fund. Boston has annual funds for Tanglewood, for the school, for, for the, um, uh, the symphony, of course, and for Pops. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's the strength. You know, it, it's in a period where you don't want all your eggs in one basket. I'm certainly preaching it in Europe. I've been preaching it with other orchestras. I'm, I'm, this note I'm writing, uh, I've advised other orchestras on, on how to create separate revenue streams. So my question, therefore, Mark, I don't want to cut you off, but I only got seven minutes left here, is what is the relationship between the people who make the decisions in Boston and the people who in our area, um, you know, I live real close to Tanglewood, are represented? Is one much greater than the other? No, it, it, frankly, on the festival side, the curator, the artistic person is Tony Fogg, and he does the Boston Symphony, and he does the Festival of Tanglewood. The one thing that's separate about Tanglewood that has separate staff is the school, because there is no school in Boston. So that, that is unique to Tanglewood. You know, it's not really a school per se. It's a music center, uh, you know, where, you know, the 150 of the most talented kids from all over the world come and, and congregate for eight weeks, and, and, and you know, Bernstein in the first class stage, he wasn't... Uh, 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 obvious fellow, you know, so that that has a separate staff, but that still reports through the hierarchy of the Boston Symphony. Well, 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 yeah. hold on one second. Now, the brilliant Tony Fogg, who you have just mentioned, who gets ticked off at me because every time I interview him, I mention something about going around the world in 80 days. You may remember Phineas Fogg. And, you know, he is still in position, even with your leaving, right, to do the talent development and plan out what's going to be played, right? Well, he, he still is the artistic administrator and anything the Boston Symphony, you know, anything that's happening in the shed or Ozawa Hall that's part of the recital series, he, he's he's curating. By the way, he is going around the world because he, he's finally with this pandemic calming down a little bit. Can I see his his, his father in, in Australia and then he's going to join the orchestra in Vienna? So I, I think he actually is going to circumvent. I, don't, I think he's doing it in fewer than 80 days. Uh, Jules Verne would be disappointed. But but uh, ultimately, he's doing that. So that's kind of curious you say that. I'm, I'm going to call him afterwards and tease him. Did you make a mistake in leaving too early? I mean, I'm still a little angry with you because, um, you know, I loved your being there and I could pick on you and we could have these discussions over the years. But do you ever roll over at night and say, maybe, maybe it was a little too early? You can still pick on me, Alan, but, but uh, no, because I, I did it. And, and you know, what what's... I, I, I was, you know, I stayed longer than I thought I was going to stay because I wanted to work through the pandemic and make sure the orchestra, we, we, you know, we raised my last, uh, you know, uh, period of time, you know, the, the first year of the pandemic, we raised $60 million and then we raised $40 million on top of that. So the orchestra is, is and then the money we, you know, the money that the team did uh, that got from, from the shuttered venues from the federal government, if you recall, $10 million there and mm-hmm. another five 
uh, you know, so the, the orchestra, financially speaking, uh, you know, I, 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 I left in very, very good shape. I wanted to do that uh, and finish that and, and, and frankly do other stuff. You know, I, 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 I've been involved in programming 38 seasons, you know, and then of 23 in Boston and at Tangwood. At a, at a certain point, you know, it, it, I, it, was, it was enough. And I, I, I kind of want to do other stuff, and I didn't have time. You know, I, I'd run to Harvard and teach a class and then feel guilty because I was missing something, you know, and, 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 and I've had so many requests to write stuff, you know, and, and, and from, from publishers, from agents, from universities. You know, and I, and I never could agree to do it because I didn't have the time. And and candidly, I like being around students. I, I like uh, the energy, especially graduate students. You know, sometimes freshmen and sophomores, it's a different experience. I mean, they, 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 they're just, you know, finding their way. Uh, but I, I just had a fantastic, you know, you know, 10, I mean, well, it's more than 10 days in, in, in Florida working with, with an incredibly, I mean, if you want affirmation, you, you see Miami, obviously, the gateway the South America, I, I'd say more than a third, if not half the orchestra were, were people of color, you know, and, and these incredible musicians from Caracas, from Bogota, from, from, from Buenos Aires, you know, from, from uh, Lima, there was a whole group of, of, of Peruvians and, and they, you know, they somehow migrate to this place in Miami for obvious reasons, given, given, you know, where, where Miami, you know, is mm-hmm. and, and it means to, to South America. So that was, it was fascinating uh, being part of that. It's fascinating with my, my colleagues that I'm writing this book with in, in Italy and, and learning, you know, the, you know, more, I thought I knew something. I, I there was a lot I didn't know uh, about the Italian system and, and working with, with them. So, you know, I, 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 I certainly miss the players. I miss some of the artistic leaders, but you know, Andres and I still talk all the time. The players, I still socialize with the players and the staff that are remaining. I, 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 I certainly stay in touch with and some of the board, you know, especially the old guard. Well, Mark Volpe, over the years, you and I have had many discussions. People always call me up and say, is he related to the governor of Massachusetts, who was the governor of Massachusetts? And I always say no, because I've asked you that question a number of times. But it must have served you well for all those people to be thinking so. Well, you, you get a good table in the North End. <laughs> um, uh, the reality is, one of my cousins, because was, she was doing a ton of research trying to figure out if we could get Italian citizenship. I have a, an Italian cousin, I mean, uh, uh, well, yeah, who, who was trying to go back to Italy and work through the, you know, the work permitting and all that. Yeah, she's done some genealogy, and and, and I, I was surprised to learn we are distant relatives. Oh I mean, no! It's, it's, After having denied that all of these years, turns I, out you are. You know, it, it's third or fourth cousin, two or three times removed. So don't get too excited. But well, but that's but acceptable. you know. I met him once. I, I, I actually had the audacity to ask him as a kid what his favorite job was, because he was obviously Secretary of Transportation in Nixon's cabinet, and he was governor. He was also ambassador to Italy, and that was his answer. He, uh, not Italy. I think he was ambassador to the Vatican, and he said he had the best chef he ever had. So that, that, that was his favorite job, <laughs> true Italian. We've been talking to the great Mark Volpe. I have so looked forward to this, Mark, former president and CEO of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, current professor, advisor, and author. Thank you so much, Mark. I can't wait till the next time we talk to you. We've just skimmed the surface. Thanks again. Thank you, Alan. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. 
For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series, or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.